So I just want to reiterate, I want to encourage everyone to stay and eat with us. Uh, whether you have money to give toward missions or not, you know, we just always tell people, you, you know, you're probably going to go eat somewhere. Um, and even if you, you know, eat at home, you still got to buy the food you're going to eat. And so whatever you can give, um, as God would just put on your heart to go to our missionaries um, and to be able to just fellowship together. Uh, there's something, I think, that we've lost in our culture, uh, in our modern culture, but, you know, in, in the East uh, and in uh, really in still many parts of the world, to sit down and break bread together with somebody is a very significant thing. It's, it's significant in terms of relationship and fellowship together. And so we don't just do this... Um, it's not just a fundraiser for missions. It really is an opportunity for us to sit down and sit at a table together and break bread together and share life together. And so we try to create as many opportunities as possible to do that, whether it's you know at our Bible study times or fellowship times or just come out to the house and sit around the campfire time or whatever. Um, and you're encouraged to do that with others, that you would invite people into the rhythms of your life and share life with them. Uh, you know, this is really what we are commanded to do by Jesus. I believe firmly that this is really what making disciples is about. Making disciples is not just some um, cold, theoretical, institutionalized thing that we do. It's about life. It's about sharing life. When Jesus called his disciples, they lived together. They, they walked together. They learned together. They ate together. They prayed together. They, I believe they had fun together. I believe they laughed together. I believe they cried together. I believe they experienced the full range of emotions that any human being could experience together. And that's really what life is about. I think sometimes in our modern culture and in Christianity as it has become in America, and you guys that have been here for a while know that I've got issues with what Christianity has become in America. And I think so many times we send the wrong message. We make people think, well, you know, you're not supposed to be having cancer, Cindy. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be having this problem. Or we're afraid to, to tell people what's really going on in our lives because we don't want to confess something negative or we want to keep this facade up that, that says, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to have it all together and I'm not supposed to have any problems in life and, and I can't let people into really who I am and, and into my issues. And, and I would challenge you and, and I would say, show me in the scripture where anywhere from Genesis to the book of Revelation that we see a Christianity like that, that we see God who has recorded this word for us and he has put in it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he did that for a reason. He did that because life is full of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're to live life together in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're to love one another. And we're to bear with one another. And so this idea that I can't have any problems or I shouldn't have any problems, and I certainly can't let people know I have any problems because then the secret would be out. There are no secrets. We are human beings. We're frail. We're fallen. We're without hope, without Christ. But Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you in all things, in the good, in the bad, in the ugly. And so when we come together and we fellowship together, it's, it's to come to know one another, to share with one another, all of those things. To be able to call someone up and say, hey, I need you to pray for me. Hey, I'm having a rough day. You don't have to know all the details, but I just need you to pray for me. We need to be able to do that with one another. We need to be able to trust one another and not be fearful that if I let somebody know what's going on in my life, that they're going to respond the wrong way. 
We need to trust. And we need to be people that will respond the right way. Amen? So I want to give you three verses before we finish 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So we're teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to finish this book today. And we're going to, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians from verses 19 through... Uh, 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. <clears throat> I want to share three verses that might appear to have nothing to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but, but it will have to do with, with what we're going to talk about today. And I want you, again, to understand where I am coming from as your pastor. <clears throat> so the first, verb, uh, first verse is Proverbs 29, 18. The New King James says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. We often stop right there, that first half of the verse, but the whole verse is, where there is no revelation, the people of God cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Your King James says, without a vision, my people perish. So where there is no revelation... The people cast off restraint. The next verse I want to share to you is, is, is John chapter 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Who is the Word that's made flesh? It is Jesus who is the word that was preexistent before creation? It is Jesus. Who is the word that is God? It is Jesus. The last verse I want to share is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. How does God speak to us today? Through his Son. Where there is no vision, where there is no revelation, where there is no prophetic revelation, how do we... Receive revelation today. God speaks to us by His Son. How is, his, how is His Son revealed to us today? He's revealed in this Word. Who illuminates this Word for us? The Spirit of God illuminates this Word to reveal to us the Son. So if you're hearing voices telling you to do things, if they're not lining up with what this Word says... I would greatly encourage you to stop listening to those voices or maybe go get some help because it ain't the right spirit that's talking to you because God will never God will never reveal anything to you instruct you lead you guide you to do something that's going to be contrary to his word so God in these last days has speaks to us by His Son. So we're obligated, not to men, but to God. It doesn't mean we disregard one another. It doesn't mean we don't have obligations to one another. But our first obligation is not to men. Our first obligation is to God, and therefore to His Word. And so as your pastor... The Bible says that I'll stand one day and give an account, not based on how popular I am with men, but I'll stand and give an account one day based on how I preach and how I teach this word. Because this is what I'm obligated to preach and to teach to you as a pastor. Pastor is not a vocation or a calling that I chose, it's one that God chose. It, most of the time, is my greatest joy. Sometimes, it's not. 
But it's really not about how it affects me or how it makes me feel. My obligation is to the Lord to preach and to teach the truth of Scripture. And that's what I will stand before the Lord and give an account to one day. As much as I wish to be popular, I'm not competing in a popularity contest. But the Bible says that I'm competing or I'm running a race. Well, what is this race? This race is a race that involves the destiny of men's souls. And ultimately, this race culminates, and it's really all about the glory of God. It's not about how many stars I'm going to have in my crown. It's not about how many rewards I'm going to get. It's not going to be about any of that. For Not just for me, but for anyone. Paul the Apostle, in this very book that we're studying, says, we belong to Jesus. He said, I've been bought with a price. I don't belong to myself any longer. I belong to Jesus. Now that's nice to read in the Bible. That's nice to put on my refrigerator. It's nice to wear on my t-shirt. But the question is, do I really believe that? Do you really believe that? That's a, that's a, that's a serious question that we need to ask ourselves. So this is why we must strive to be true to God's word, whatever the cost. We do this with grace and love for one another, having, as the old saying goes, unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials, and charity or love in all things. Do you guys realize that we are going to populate heaven one day with, I believe, billions of other people? And we're going to worship around the throne of God. We're going to populate heaven with people that don't believe exactly the way we believe. If we were all able to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation together, if I could take each one of you and just line you up and sit down and just take the time to have a one-on-one conversation, do you know at the end of it, you and and I would find that we we agree on most things, but there's going to be some things that we probably disagree on. But if we agree on the right things, do you know that we're, we're going to go to heaven together? Do you know God's not going to segregate heaven, and he's not going to put this group over here, and this group over here, and this group over here, and say, well, you guys couldn't get along on earth, so we're just going to keep you separated in heaven, so you don't have to see each other for all eternity? I'm sorry, I don't know. Some people might think that's the way it's going to be, but that's not the way it's going to be. If we can't unify around Jesus... And around the gospel, somebody asked me, you know, I've, I've had a number of people ask me, how would you describe your church? You know, people call and they say, what, what kind of church are you? And here's my answer. We are a gospel-centered church. Well, are you this? Well, yeah. Are you that? Well, no. We're gospel-centered. Does that mean that we're all going to agree on everything? No, absolutely not. But we better agree on the gospel. We better agree on who Jesus is. We better agree on how men are saved. We better agree on the very fundamentals of this word. That is God's word revealed to us. And on the matters that really aren't essential to our salvation, we ought to be able to sit down and have, I think, some people don't enjoy this, but I do. They ought to be able to sit down and have a motivating and challenging conversation about those things and walk away feeling motivated to go and study the Scripture maybe in a deeper way. But, but however you want to say that, or however you want to think about that, I want you to think about the fact that we're going to all spend eternity together. And the prayer of Jesus in John 17 was that you be one even as the Father and I are one. Now, we may never achieve that exactly because green's my favorite color and I might not be able to convince you that green is the best color and it should be your favorite color too. But it's okay 
if you have a different favorite color than I do. Or you might have one view of how God's going to wrap up time and space and all of that, and I might have a different view of that. But you know what? We ought to be able to sit down and have fun talking about that. And we'll all get to heaven one day and we'll, we'll, we'll find out either somebody was right or maybe we were all wrong. God did it in a way that we didn't even see coming. I don't know. But the question is, who is Jesus? What is his gospel? What is this word and why has God given it to us? And why are we here on this earth? Because we're here for a purpose. Now, really, in... In a lot of ways, this is exactly what Paul is talking to the Corinthians about. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see something. He's trying to get them to become unfocused on their... I mean, they had a microscope on certain issues, and they were fighting and dividing their church over petty, senseless things. And Paul, in his letter, is trying to get them to enlarge their vision, and, and, and see a bigger picture of what this gospel is about and what our life here is about. So let's read, let's read together verses 19 through 23. We'll take that section of Scripture first. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might with the more, I'm sorry, that I might win the more, and to the Jews became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, and to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. In other words, Paul didn't just go out there and live any way, any sinful lifestyle he wanted to. That's not what he's saying. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Let me just finish the chapter. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, but thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. All right, I want to talk to you about freedom, submission, and glory. Freedom, submission, and glory. Let's take this first verse, verse 19. Paul writes this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Father, I just ask that you would right now open our hearts and open our minds by your Spirit and reveal your truth to us. God, I pray that we would hear the truth of your gospel today, that we would hear the heart, your heart, the heart of the Father, for those that Christ came to save. Lord, we would hear your heart for men to be saved, that we would hear your heart, God, that our lives would be lives that we're willing to lay down for a greater cause, a greater purpose, and a greater glory. Father, we ask that you would do this today by your Spirit, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Freedom, submission, and glory. Paul says, I am free from all men. So our position is freedom in Christ. You are free in Christ. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I have made myself a servant to all, 
that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty powerful statement. Paul, the apostle, who says, I, I am free, yet I have made myself a servant to all. So our position is freedom in Christ, but we practice submission. Why? For the gospel's sake. We practice submission for the gospel's sake. So Paul says, you know what? I have the right to eat that ribeye steak even if it was sacrificed in a temple to an idol, but I'm not going to exercise the right to eat that ribeye steak today because I love my brother more than I love ribeye steaks. I know that the, that the idol is nothing. I know that the meat doesn't commend me. It doesn't condemn me. It's nothing. It's just a piece of meat. But my brother who is weak in his faith, who does not understand the freedom that we have in Christ, thinks that if I eat that steak, it's going to do something to me, and it's going to somehow diminish my righteousness and my holiness. And so for his sake, I'm not going to eat that steak today. Are you tracking with me? We have freedom in Christ. But Paul chose to practice submission for the gospel's sake. Then he says that I might win the more. Our purpose, ultimately, is to bring glory to the Father. This is what Jesus said in John 15. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear more fruit. So, fruitfulness brings glory to the Father. Ultimately, the reason Paul is writing this and the reason he's telling the Corinthian church this, he says, guys, this isn't about you and whether you have the right to go eat at at the idol restaurant or not, whether you have the right to eat meat or not. This isn't about you, whether you have so much knowledge and you've got all of this and you're all puffed up and, and maybe you're right in what you believe Maybe you've come to the right conclusions, but you're going about it the wrong way. Because you're not considering your brother. You're not loving your brother. You're more in love with yourself and your own rights and exercising those instead of loving your brother. So our freedom in Christ is by grace through faith. You get that? We don't earn our freedom. We don't earn our position with God. We're not working, climbing the latter trying to achieve something with God. What God has given to us, God has given to us by grace. That means we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was unmerited. There are no merit raises in God's kingdom. There aren't. Because the only merit, the only work that God recognized is the work of the cross. And it's our trust in Christ and who he is. So freedom in Christ is by grace through faith. It's freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. You get that? I'm not free to sin now. I had someone come to my office many years ago who wanted to do something that was clearly against Scripture. And they wanted my, I don't know what they wanted really, my blessing, my advice, something. I said, I can't, I can't give you my blessing. Because what you're wanting to do is, I mean, it's right here in red and white. Can't do it. And their comment to me was, well, I'm going to do it anyways, and God's got to forgive me. I said, man, you know, I'm praying for you. No, listen, freedom is not our freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. What we need to realize is that before we were born again, before we came to faith in Christ, we could not do anything but sin. We were trapped in sin. I'm not talking about how good your behavior is. I'm not talking about how good and moral you you are as a person. Your good works aren't going to get you any more than your bad works are going to get you. You are in sin because that was the nature you were born with. And there's going to be a lot of people who will not spend eternity in heaven in the presence of the Lord who lived good, upstanding, moral lives because they thought their morality, their moralistic lifestyle was going to save them. And if we can be saved by our moralistic lifestyles, 
this is not my word. This is what the Bible says. This is what Paul wrote. If you can be saved by your moralistic lifestyle, then Jesus died in vain. Then what was the point of Jesus coming and dying if we could work our way to heaven? If we could be righteous through a moralistic lifestyle, then Jesus just did all he did for nothing. No, the reality is we cannot be saved any way except the way who is Christ. There is no good work except the good work that he did on the cross. Now, it is true in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God says you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them. Those good works, those works that the Bible would call good, are works that we do as after we have come into life in Christ. They're not our works anyways. Paul says they're works that were created for you beforehand. They were works that God created for you to walk in. They weren't your good idea. (laughs) They were his good idea. They're not your good works or my good works. They're his good works. And he gives us the privilege to walk them out. To love. The Bible says God is love. And we love him because he first loved us. The only way we can love people is because he's put his love in us. Love is not an obligation. Love is a privilege. God has privileged us to love. Don't see love as an obligation. See love as a privilege that God has given to you. And he's put his love in you so that you can love. Our submission for the gospel's sake is an act of love for a cause greater than ourselves. It is submission of self to serve, not self-serving submission. Have you ever done something and said, you know, I'm going to do this because I know if I do this, even though I don't want to do this, I'm going to do this even though I don't want to do this because if I do this, then this is going to happen. If I do this for this person, even though I can't stand this person, I really don't want to do this for this person, but I'm going to do it for them anyways because I know if I do this for this person, then they're going to react accordingly. That's what I mean by self-serving submission. You're not really doing it because you care about the person. You're you're doing it really about hoping that in the end, it's a ways, it's a means to an end, and the end is about me. That's not what Paul was doing here. Paul laid down his rights for the gospel's sake. He said, if I'm not willing to lay down my rights for certain people, then those people may not be able to hear and see and comprehend the gospel in the way that I want them to. So them getting the gospel is more important than me upholding my right to do something. So our submission for the gospel's sake is an act of love for a cause greater than ourselves. The purpose of laying down our rights for the gospel's sake is the salvation of men to the glory of the Father. Ultimately, all things, and I mean that, all things are for His glory. All things. Now you may not understand that you may not be able to see that it's kind of like the song we sang it may be a mystery to you right now but one day in the brightness of his presence you're going to see that all things have worked together for his glory now i'm going to talk to you about a term it's a big word but it's not a complicated meaning because it's a it's a word called contextualization And contextualization is simply the idea of translating gospel truth into the language of a culture in both word and deed. Or simply, contextualization is making the gospel understandable in the context of a culture. Contextualization is simply making the gospel understandable in the context of a culture. So look at verse 20. Paul said, and to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Well, he was a Jew. What's he saying? He said, look, when I'm with the Jews who don't understand 
the freedom that I have in Christ, who don't understand that I'm not bound by Sabbaths and laws and eating certain things and not eating certain things. I live as a Jew. I respect their culture and understandings. It's kind of like when we go to Mexico. We show up at the mission in shorts and flip-flops and T-shirts. So we were always told, look, guys, when you go over to Mexico, now it may be different now, you know, but when we first started going over there, it's like you you can't wear shorts, can't wear flip-flops, can't wear because their culture doesn't understand that. You show up at church over there in shorts and flip-flops, and they might not say anything to you, but you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. They're going to be wondering, why are you disrespecting God? Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you what. Um, I'm pretty laid back, okay? You come here in short and flip, shorts and flip-flops, I'm not going to think one thing about it. I promise you. I just, I, I won't think anything about it. I just won't. And there's a reason why I don't wear a suit and tie anymore. I used to every Sunday. I mean, I used to work in one every day and on Sundays, right? But it got to be where I was the only one wearing a suit and tie in church. I'm like, okay, why am I the only one wearing a coat and tie in church? You know, I'm not identifying with the culture of my congregation here, I guess. So I said, you know what? And honestly, I'll tell you, I remember the first time I preached in blue jeans. No one else probably out there thought anything about it, but I was like, oh, my God, you know. Not that I was, I, I wasn't worried about what God thought. It was, it was me, you know. It's like, ah, you know, because I, I mean, I knew men of God who thought if you preach in a short sleeve shirt, you are going to go to hell until you repent. I, seriously, I'm not joking. There are people that believe things like that, Okay. So if I was ever invited to go speak in one of those guys' churches, guess what? I wouldn't wear a short sleeve shirt. Why? Because, because they wouldn't be able to hear anything I was saying because they'd be focused on the fact that I'm standing in the pulpit with a short sleeve shirt on, much less blue jeans, right? So I, I, I will respect the culture of that church, though I may disagree with it, though I may think that they're way too legalistic. And I could sit down and show them, hey, look, Let's, but it wouldn't be worth it, right? Just respect the culture. So the couple that we had visit uh, about a month or so ago, they're fixing to go to India for three years. And, and the, it was real interesting. Now, y'all know, I, I, I'm not even past my first page here, and i got 15 minutes to finish. You say, why are you telling us that, Pastor Jeff? I don't know, I'm just, I'm just warning you, okay? Go tell them to turn the fire down on that chili. No, I'm just teasing. And they said, you know, when we go to India, you can always tell the Christians because the Christians are the ones. I mean, this is really what the girl said. She said, like the girls who are Christians, they're the ones that are dressed most like slutty. They look like Madonna and Lady Gaga, and they dress. I mean, that's what they, you know. And then the Muslims and the Hindus are looking at the Christians as like, you want us to become that? No. We're not going to become that. They believe some of the most ridiculous things. They believe, you know, that all girls are giving up their virginity at 14 years. That's like a cultural thing in America. And, you know, and these people are trying to teach them, no, that's not who we are. That's not Christianity. That's not who we are in America. But they're like, but that's what we see on the TV. That's what we've been taught. And so, because someone came, because the, the American girl, she dresses for the culture. She covers her head. She dresses. And they're like, the Christian's like, why are you dressed like that? She goes, uh, out of respect for the culture. You don't have, you're free. You don't have to dress like that. We don't. And they're like, yeah, and that's the problem. That's why nobody wants to have anything to do with you guys. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, right? So we're all here in America. So... How do we contextualize? How do we make the gospel understandable in the context of our culture? Well, Paul said, hey, 
When I'm with the Jews, I become a Jew. I become as a Jew. To those who are under the law, I become as under the law. Why? That I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, when I go to the Gentiles who never grew up under the law of Moses, they don't even know what it means to, you know, I mean, I don't live as one under the law. I live as one out from under the law. And he clarifies, he said, that doesn't mean that I'm going with them to their pagan temples and sacrificing to their idols. He said, I live under the law of Christ. I'm not living a sinful lifestyle, but I'm not putting myself under the restrictions of the Mosaic law because these guys don't have a clue what the Mosaic law is. So I go and I live as one without the law. If they put pig in front of me to eat, I'll eat pig. I won't ask any questions. And this is what we're going to see when we get into chapter 10. He says, look, go to their house, eat what they set before you, and don't ask any questions. In other words, don't ask them where the meat came from. But if somebody says, hey, that meat came from the pagan temple, and you know, you know it's against the law to eat that, then he says, okay, now you've got an issue with your brother here. It has nothing to do with the meat. It has everything to do with your brother. So he says, when I'm with those who are without law, I'm, I'm as without law. To the weak, I become as weak, that I might win the weak. Oh, you don't believe you're supposed to eat that? Okay, then we won't eat that. Let me share the gospel with you. So, so that they don't get hung up on non-essential issues. So he says, ultimately, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. Now that's contextualization. It involves building relationships within the culture. How do we do that? We go to them. So church is not about trying to create an environment to draw people into this building. That's not what church is about. Why do I preach and teach the scripture to you? To equip you so that you can go out into the world, to your workplaces, to your play places, to your wherever, and, and in whatever you're doing, and you can take the gospel. You're equipped to take the gospel so that you know how to live out there and how to communicate within the context of your culture, this gospel. So it, it involves building relationships within the culture. So we go to them. It involves speaking the language of the culture. Well, we all speak English, right? So we don't have to learn another language. If we were going to northern India, we might have to learn another language if we're going to really be able to reach those people. But we may all speak English, but do you know how to speak the language of the people that you find yourself involved with? Do you know how to speak their language? So in certain work contexts, certain social contexts, do you know how to talk to the people that you're with? Can you speak their language? We talk with them. Contextualization involves listening to the people of the culture. This is a tough one for us. We don't listen well. Learn to listen to the people around you that you're talking to. Learn to listen to them. So we listen with them. And the fourth thing is this, is learning how to communicate God's unchanging word to a constantly changing culture. We learn with them. Do you, you realize that our culture changes, things change. Now, this is really hard for the church because the church wants everything to stay the same. And the reality is everything doesn't stay the same. People don't stay the same. Cultures don't stay the same. Things change. God doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. But we need to be willing to change, to grow, to mature, to learn, 
to figure out how do we best fulfill what Jesus has commanded us to do, which is to go and make disciples. We need to be willing to have our paradigms broken. Oh, we don't like that. But I can promise you this. If you're not willing to break your paradigm, God knows how to break it for you. And when God breaks your paradigm, it's not nearly as pleasant as if you will just lay your paradigm down and say, God, here, you can have my paradigm. Show me the new one I need to to have. You know why God will break your paradigms? God will break your paradigms because we forget constantly that this is not about us. We think it's about us, so we want to hold on to our paradigms. But God, we've done it this way for 35 years. Or God, we've done it this way for 350 years. Or God, we've done it this way for 3,500 years, the Jews would say. So we need to be willing to build, to speak, to listen, to learn. You need to know that contextualization is not compromise. Learning how to reach people with the gospel in the context of their culture does not warrant compromise. What I see happening in much of the church today is not contextualization, it's compromise. We've got this segment of the population here and this segment of the population here that wants the church to put their stamp of approval on them and say, call evil good, call what the Bible calls sin, not sin. When we do that, that's not contextualization. That's compromise. We are never justified in compromising the gospel. Because what good is it going to do if we tell people a lie about the gospel so that they will join our club only for them to stand before the Lord one day and find out that they were told a lie by the very people that were supposed to be carriers of the truth. That's why I said at the beginning, I'm not here competing in a popularity contest. I'm here to give you the gospel. But just know that before I give you the gospel, I get it myself. So the paradigms that you feel like are being broken in your life, trust me, God has shattered just about all of them in my life. And you know what I have come to the conclusion of? There are a whole lot more paradigms that I have that I don't even realize I have. He's just shattered the ones that I've been able to handle. But down the road, he'll show me some more that are going to have to be shattered. He says, don't worry, you're not able to handle that right now, but when it comes time, we'll take care of that one too. Do you trust him, church? Do you trust him? This is what I mean when I say the Bible deals with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anyone that tells you, oh, just become a Christian and all your troubles will be over, boy, you better run from them as fast as you can. Because they're either lying to you or they are or just so naive, they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus made a promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. David didn't write, though I pass over the valley of the shadow of death. He said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Nowhere does the Bible say that God's going to take us out of our troubles. The Bible says he'll walk with us through our troubles. And he will get us through them. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to be battered and bruised when you get on the other side. And if you are, he knows how to deal with your bruises and your battered places. He knows how to heal you. He knows how to restore you. He knows how to bind up the brokenhearted. He knows how to do that. You trust him to do that. So contextualization is not giving people what they want and telling people what they want to hear. That's compromise. We're called to speak the truth in love and to allow the truth to do its work. Contextualization is giving people God's answers. Do you know people often don't want God's answers? But just because people don't want God's answers doesn't mean that we should not give them God's answers. 
Did you get that? We're to give people God's answers to the questions that they are really asking in ways that they can understand. This is the importance of listening. When you talk to people, listen to what they're really saying. You'll hear their questions if you'll listen. And you'll know what to tell them. Have you ever been talking to someone and you say, man, I know I'm supposed to tell this person this, but I don't want to tell them because this is too hard. That's where you've got to trust God and you've got to say, you know what? I'm obligated to speak the truth in love. And I'm going to trust God with the truth. I'm just the messenger. I didn't write the message. I'm just delivering the message. I'm the messenger. And that's who we are when we when we communicate the gospel, when we, when we communicate truth to people. Here's a good quote from Tim Keller about contextualization. To over-contextualize to a new generation means you can make an idol out of their culture. But to under-contextualize to a new generation means you can make an idol out of the culture you come from. Well, you know, those, those new songs, I just don't get anything out of them. Don't make an idol out of your old songs. You know, those old songs, I just, I just can't get anything out of those old songs. Don't make an idol out of your new songs. Maybe you need to lay down your right. That's what I appreciate about Conway Humphrey so much. This guy's hardcore Southern Baptist, Southern Gospel. I mean, hardcore, I mean, this is like... All, you know, some of the songs we sing, you know, they're, it's, it's almost like listening to uh, uh, heavy metal to him, you know? I mean, it's like so out of the box. <laughs> that not so much the extreme anymore, but there was a time when he, he probably would have agreed with that. But yet, you know, it's like, look, it's not, about, it's not about me, and it's not just about the kind of music that I like. He was willing to lay down his right. We need to all be willing to do that. doesn't mean we can't find a good, I think we have a pretty good mix, you know, of old and new. And I don't know if, you know, I never go to Caleb and say, look, I want you to sing this, I don't want you to sing that. You know, I say, look, you, you let God lead you. You sing the songs you feel like the Spirit of God's put on your heart, and that's it. I don't get involved in that. You know why? Because Pastor Bennett never did that to me. So we need to trust one another, right? And sometimes in the midst of that, we need to be willing to lay down our right to allow God to work things out in people. Maybe God's working something out in the worship leader. Maybe God's working something out in the pastor. We need to be willing to lay down our right to allow God to do His work. And in the midst of that, we're called to love one another. Amen? So it's learning how to preach or how to reach people where they are without compromising the truth and the power of the gospel. We need to learn to reach people where they are without making cultural idols so that we clearly communicate to them there is one Lord and one object of your worship. His name is Jesus. Now let's look at verses 24 uh, through 27 and we're going to close this out. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So contextualization is not easy, but it's a necessity born out of love. I need to do this for the sake of love. So when I use this word, I'm really talking about how we live our life. It's how we live out the gospel and how we manifest to others the life of Christ. How do you do that? Do you just beat them over the head with the Bible and say, well, you dirty sinner, you just need to repent because here's what the Bible says. Please don't do that. I didn't say don't use the Bible. I'm saying don't use the Bible as a weapon to kill people. <laughs> use the Bible as a two-edged sword and, and let God take it and let him 
kill with it what he wants to kill and let him heal with it what he wants to heal. It's like a surgeon's scalpel, right? It's like the, the, the example if I said, you, uh, you know, somebody plunged a knife into the, to the young girl. Is that an evil act? Well, it depends, right? If it's a surgeon who's plunged a knife in her to perform an operation to save her life, then it's not an evil act, is it? Trust God that he knows how to take his word. So you speak the truth in love and let the truth, though it may cut, it may be sharp, let, it, let the truth do its work. So it's not, when we talk about contextualization, it's not for our salvation, but for the salvation of others or to be a witness to others. We do these things to see others come to faith. To be a witness, we must be willing to run our race. Paul says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. We need to run our race with purpose and endurance in the face of opposition. Anybody facing the opposition? Don't stop running your race just because you're facing opposition. Run with purpose and run with endurance. Run to win. He says, those who compete for the prize are temperate in all things. That word temperate means to restrain. If you were, if you were training to run a, an Ironman competition, you not only would not go back for that second piece of pie, you wouldn't have had the first one to begin with. Right? Restrain your carnal tendencies toward what? Toward compromise and toward selfishness. That's my right. Restrain exercising your right in some situations for the sake of unity and for the sake of the gospel. So we need to run our race with purpose. We need to restrain our carnal tendencies. We need to renew our mind. And in renewing our mind, we discipline our body. We bring the flesh in subjection to the spirit by renewing our mind to the truth. What truth? The truth that we are crucified with Christ and raised with him. Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse. It's no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's no longer us, me, I who live. It's Christ. Why does Paul say this? Because he desires to see the gospel preached to men and see those men come to faith. Why did he do it? Because necessity was laid on him, he said in verse 16. But he didn't just do it out of necessity. He did it out of love. Love for what? Love for God? Love for men? The desire to see God glorified through the salvation wrought by Jesus on the cross. Paul purposed to meet men where they were when he preached the gospel, and that meant that Paul would willingly and purposefully Run his race with endurance in the face of opposition. Restrain whatever tendencies he had to exercise his God-given rights. He was constantly renewing his mind. How do we know that? Because Paul could not write the things that he wrote and do the things that he did if he continued to live as who he was, as a Jew bound up in legalism. He allowed the Spirit of God to break his paradigms, to renew his mind. He did that for the sake of the gospel. So we're called to obediently and willingly, out of love for God and for our neighbor, fulfill the commission to go and to make disciples. We do all these things. We run, we restrain our rights, we renew our mind. We do all of these things in our freedom in Christ. We do it in our submission for the gospel's sake. And we do it for the glory of the Father. This is our privilege, church. And I'm closing with this. This is our privilege. But it's not just your privilege. It should be your greatest joy. Can you find joy in what I'm talking about? You know joy and happiness are two different things. You can have joy in the midst of very trying circumstances. You might not find much happiness in the midst of your tribulation, but you can find Joy, because joy should be transcendent. Joy is not 
conditional upon my circumstances. Happiness may be, but not joy. So Paul did these things because he loved the Lord. And Paul loved the church. And he loved the people of God. And Paul loved the church because he loved Christ. Because Christ and His church are one. You can't love Christ and not love His church. It's impossible. Now there's a lot of things that we call church that are man-made, that are perverted, that are tolling completely of man and not of God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the true body of Christ. You may disagree with me on many things, but if we are both believers, we are commanded to love one another. Find a way to live in unity and in community with one another. So Paul endured much. He suffered much. He sacrificed much to experience the joy of bringing the gospel to as many men and women as he possibly could. And he did that even to his death. He was martyred in Rome. And he preached the gospel up to the very end of his life. And he knew he was going to die when he went to Rome. So this is my challenge to you today. We may not be called to such an extreme lifestyle as the Apostle Paul. I doubt any of us will sitting in this room unless God sends you somewhere else or something really horrible happens in our lifetime. But here's what we are called to. We are called to such extreme devotion. We are called to be extremely devoted to Christ. Devoted to His body, the church. Devoted to the gospel. Devoted to the glory of God. And so I challenge you to find and to live with that extreme devotion to God, to His church, to His gospel, to one another. And that in doing so, you would find this to be not only your greatest privilege, but your greatest joy. Amen? Let's all stand. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, you're not going to find that just because you heard a sermon about it or you read a book about it. Sermons and books are great. And I'm going to go back to Proverbs. Without a revelation, the people cast off restraint. I can tell you about Jesus. I can tell you about devotion. I can tell you about all these things. But only the Spirit of God can give you a revelation of those things. And until you get a revelation on the inside of these things, you'll be like that little hamster spinning your wheel as fast as you can, but you're not going to get anywhere. So my encouragement to you is that you would just surrender everything to Him and that you would ask Him to take your life and to use it for His will, for His purpose, for His glory. And that if there are any paradigms that need to be broken, that you would indeed ask Him, as painful as it may be, and and I promise you it probably will be painful, that you would out of the sincerity of your heart say, God, if I've got paradigms that are contrary to you, contrary to the truth, contrary to what you desire to do in my life. God, would you please break those? Would you just close your eyes right now and, and just ask God to do that? Just say, God, if, if I have any paradigms in my life that need to be broken because they're contrary to you, they're contrary to your will and your purpose for my life, God, would you break those? In your grace, God, would you break those? Father, I pray today that you would do a work by your Spirit in your people. Lord, if there are any here today that have never come to know you in a real way, God, the gospel has pricked their heart today. There's something in their heart, there's something in them that is, is prompting them to know this God, to surrender to this God lay down their life into the hands of this God that has promised to, li- to love us and to never leave us and to never forsake us through the darkest valley, through the greatest trial.
Help us, Lord, not to just look to that God, but help us to be a people so that we can look to one another for the love and the encouragement that we need on a daily basis. And Lord Jesus, you made our arms and our shoulders the arms that would give that embrace and the shoulders that would receive those tears. And you gave us hearts that could be broken for those around us when their heart breaks. Help us, Lord, to be your hands, your feet, your heart in the earth for those around us. For your glory, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.